Morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Tyler. I'm the next generation pastor here. And Ben said it a little bit earlier, but we have pastors Drew and Matt, as well as some other people out in Israel right now. And uh, I was going to ask you guys to pray for them, but I'm just going to have us pray for them right now because we can do that. So uh, let's pray for them. Jesus, thank you for our church body that doesn't just exist within these walls. Uh, we gather together to be scattered out, and I know that there's a handful of us right now in the Holy Land. Uh, that is a powerful place. I pray that your spirit would feel thick there, that they would encounter you, and that the atmosphere and air would feel differently, that they would come back reading the scriptures afresh and anew in a way that they never have seen before. Uh, we pray for them as they're in Tel Aviv and Joppa right now. Um, and we just pray that you would slow time down and heighten their senses to all that they see, hear, taste, smell, and experience. Pray in your name. Amen. If you do have uh, extra thoughts about them, you can send them some text messages. I'm sure they would love that. And uh, many of them, unless they're weird Android people, can probably get them because they'll have Wi-Fi. So, all right. I quoted this statistic last week, so bear with me if you heard it before. But according to the Institute of Family Studies, regular church attendance in America has dropped from 34% in 2019 to 28% in 2021. They cite that one quarter of pre-COVID church members are still missing, which begs the question, does going to church on Sunday still have a place in 2023? To a society who has access to infinite information at their fingertips, what need is there to listen to your local preacher? To a crowd that finds community in their hobby of choice, what obligation is there for making friends with the slightly awkward Christians you see once a month? To a people whose ideal Sunday morning includes a brunch and a hike, does worshiping on Sunday fit in still? To a culture of trying to be a good person, what need is there for a savior? The staff at this church believe the answer to the question of if church has a place is a resounding yes, it belongs, imperfections and all. And throughout this sermon series called Devoted, which we're starting today, we're going to be systematically looking at these answers by going back to the roots, the first church. Now, you might be thinking that doesn't make any sense because maybe the church was useful for a time, but society has progressed beyond it by now. Surely we're further down the road and we no longer need an opiate for the masses. Well, for that to be true, society must have evolved from its predecessor. But when we look at what the society was back in the early days, we see that it was a society filled with oppressive systems, religious plurality, and a no-rules sexual ethic. We see a society who is trying to find the kingdom without the king. We see a society much like the one we live in today. And so unfortunately, we haven't progressed beyond the church. It remains God's chosen instrument to bring the kingdom out of the mess that we find ourselves in. And so the early church's blueprint might be more helpful than what we had initially thought. Because if it can work in a society like that back then, then maybe it can work in a society like that today in 2023. Now, one disclaimer before we jump in, because sometimes there's a tendency to idolize the early church. We go, man, we should just go back to that model. And while their model seems true, it was far from perfect. Uh, if you do a little reading in the New Testament, you'll see that the early church was compelling. It was hospitable, loving, generous, and sacrificial. But it was also riddled with incest, conflict, segregations, false teaching, and ignoring the poor. In other words, it was a band of broken humans doing the best they could to right the world, but falling short at every corner. It actually sounds a lot like the church of today. But that in itself is also good news because the church was not born in a culture like our or was born not only to a culture like our own, but was also broken like our own. And it was also still extremely effective 
And so that should give us hope that we can be effective too. So let's jump into our text this morning. If you have your Bibles or phones, you can open it up. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. I'll give you a second to find it. Um, You can just mark it with your thumb. We're going to come back to it in a second. But we need to provide a little context first. So let's talk a little bit about Acts and kind of the context of this text. So Acts is written by the Apostle Luke. It's the second book of his two-book series called Luke-Acts. Luke was a co-worker with Paul, and he wrote this collection between 70 and 90 A.D., so a little bit after Jesus' life and death. Together they cover the life of Jesus, what he did, what he thought. And historically, the book of Acts has been called the Acts of the Apostles, because it traces the actions of the early church. However, a better name might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's actually the only continuous character that you find throughout the whole 28 chapters of its book. It traces the Spirit's work of expanding the church from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Acts begins basically where Luke leaves off. The disciples are interacting with the risen Christ for 40 days and then are instructed to go to Jerusalem and wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit might seem a little weird for them because they probably don't know what that is, but they're waiting. So Jesus ascends into heaven, and then the disciples are waiting. And while they're waiting, apparently they need to figure out something to do to pass the time, so they try to replace Judas. And uh, they're continuing to wait and wait and wait until what's called Pentecost. Pentecost comes from the Greek word Pentecoste. Pente means five, like a pentagram or five, right? So 50. This marks 50 days after the resurrection of Easter. So quick math tells us that if Easter walked around for 40 days and the Pentecost was 50 days, then the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem for 10 days, right? So quick math for the day. On the 50th day, on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in like a rushing wind, resting as tongues of fire on them. And then immediately after, they go outside and Peter delivers what could be considered maybe the first sermon of the church, He does it, uh, some scholars debate, but he does it maybe on the southern steps of the temple in Jerusalem, which is pretty incredible, and uh, our people who are there right now are going to be able to witness that firsthand. Uh, And then incredibly, as he's declaring this message, it says that people heard the text, it says in the text that they heard it in their native language. So some people scoffed at this message, accusing that the disciples were drunk, but Peter refuses it or refutes it saying, it's only nine in the morning which apparently is not a kosher thing to do back then. So, or maybe, I don't know. Yeah, so, now many people mistakenly believe that this is the first time the disciples speak in tongues, which is called, if you're a Bible nerd, it's called glossolalia. Glosso means tongue, lalia means language. It's the same root for where we get the word glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking. Uh, But this interpretation of speaking in tongues is actually incorrect uh, because... Uh, when Paul talks about speaking in glossolalia, like in 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about a heavenly language, but this speaking is in recognizable languages. It's like someone saying, I don't know Spanish, and then all of a sudden I learned it instantaneously and can speak it to you. And so some people don't know whether or not he was speaking that or if they're just interpreting that, but that's not glossolalia because it's a recognizable language. So what scholars call that is actually xenolalia, xeno meaning foreign Right, like xenophobic, fear of the foreigner. Xenolalia is foreign speech. So the significance of this moment is huge. Some say it's the exact reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So God institutes, these people are building a tower trying to reach the heavens, and he gives them multiple languages and scatters the people. So this is the, I don't know, the redemption of that moment, bringing everyone back together. In essence, God is bringing home the family and welcoming all to the table. And then right on the cusp of all of this, everything I just covered, so Jesus' ascension, the Spirit's dissension, of Peter's first sermon, of Xenolalia, and the church's birth, we read the text at hand today, Acts 2, 42 through 47. 
It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want to key in on that first verse for a second. Verse 42. Do you notice what categorizes the church? What did it do when it gathered? They devoted themselves to four things in specific. The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, you can call that maybe community, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And if you look at the verb in Greek, devoted, it's actually not a one-time thing. You'll discover that it means continually devoted. They were continually devoted. And so while it might not be an exact translation, a simpler version of this could be they continually devoted themselves to Scripture, community, communion, and to prayer. The early church was marked by a continual devotion to these things. And remember, the early church was also a, was broken, super broken, and in a society much like our own. So these aren't maybe recipes for success or keys to living in a perfect church so much as a guidebook for how a broken community of believers walks deeper into their salvation and witnesses to the surrounding world. And that is what we are exploring during this sermon series. And so we hope it will answer whether or not the church has a place today by giving us a roadmap on how it operated in its first day. So through the summer, we're answering a few questions that are going to emerge from those defining features of scripture, community, communion, and prayer. Questions like, how do I read the Bible? If scripture is important, how am I supposed to read it? If community is important, what distinguishes Christian community from just all the other communities that you see? And then finally, how do we pray? What does it look like for corporate prayer, individual prayer? What does the gathered body do, and how do they pray together? All right, just quick check-in. How are we doing? Still tracking? I know I just covered a lot of ground, so good. Okay, so first up on the docket, we're going to kind of shift gears here a little bit. How do I read the Bible? Because over the next five weeks, we're going to try to answer this question using the source material from the book of James. And the Bible can be difficult, really difficult, for pretty much all of us. And in order to understand it, we also need to understand what the Bible is. If we want to understand how to read it, we've got to start somewhere, and that's what is the Bible. So without further ado, welcome to Tyler's two-minute Bible class. Ready? The Bible is the most popular book in the world. In fact, it's actually excluded from every major seller list or bestseller week list. Um, If not, it would be on top of the list every single week, no matter what. There's about 100 million copies sold or given away every year. And though I can't prove it, I'd venture to guess that it's probably by percentages the least read text as well. You would think if it's the most sold and, yeah, probably least read text as well. So it can be confusing, use words and names that are foreign, and can seem senselessly violent and contradictory. Many self-professed Christians will regularly admit that if they could improve one area of their faith, it would be more consistent reading of Scripture. So let's look at what constitutes the scriptures. The Bible is a collection of writings from approximately 40 different authors written on three separate continents, comprised of three separate languages, and compiled over an estimated 1,600 years. 
It is made up of multiple different genres and separated into 66 different sections called books. 43% of it is narrative, 33% is poetry, and 24% is prose. It is divided into two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is sometimes referred to as the Hebrew Bible or Tanakh. Tanakh is an acronym for, well, a few things. T is Torah, which is the law. N, which is Nevi'im, which is the prophets. And then K, which is Ketuvim, is the writings. So that's the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh. The New Testament begins with the life of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Tanakh, of the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. It is a fulfillment of law, prophets, and writings. It's composed of the Gospels, which is the accounts of Jesus, Acts, the actions of maybe the Apostles or the Holy Spirit, and then the letters, or what's sometimes also called the Epistles. Now, if you're looking for a rabbit hole to wander into about how these texts made their way into the Bible, I'd encourage you to research what's called the New Testament canon. It's a deep, dark, interweb hole that you can find yourself in, and there's lots of strict criteria for how the texts made their way into what would be officially called the Bible. Uh, it's fortunately, we don't, have some, we don't have time today to talk about that, but I know that I get that question a lot of like, how come my Bible is different than their Bible, or how come, you know, there's something called the Apocrypha, there's like the Gospel of Thomas, there's all sorts of stuff. So if you want to look into that, feel free to do that. But class is up, two-minute Bible class um, is all over. So anyway, interesting homework, but now we're going to transition. How do I read the Bible? Hopefully you're not super bored already. Um, <laughs> you can shift your attention with me. So to answer that, uh, we just need to not really look any further than what I just did with the book of Acts. Because it was kind of all a setup, and you may not have noticed it. But what I was doing was intentionally demonstrating how to read the Bible. Do you notice kind of what I did? We answered all sorts of questions at the beginning before we even read the text. What type of genre is this? Who wrote this? When was it written? Who was it written to and why? Do the original languages provide insight to confusing words? And although we didn't do it, we could also look at maybe other translations to see if we get a better understanding of it. These questions act as a guiding framework whenever we approach the Bible. They help us make sense of it all by giving us context. And this is where we must always begin with the scriptures. Context. We need to understand these things properly to make sense of its meaning. And you might be thinking, well, that's easy for you, Tyler, because you're a professional Christian and you probably know all of that stuff. Uh, the answer is no, I'm not that smart. Even though I can say these words, I have to look up how to pronounce them online. I'm really kind of dumb. And so it's easy to just use internet and find the answers to all these things, which means you can do it as well. All right? So there are lots of resources online. One that I'd highly recommend is called The Bible Project. They have quick, easy videos that even give you videos on how do I read the Bible or, hey, I'm interested in reading the book of James. Give me like a quick five-minute overview of what this was, and it answers all these questions for you before you even approach the text. It'll help you make sense of all the stuff that you have. All right? Okay, so let me just demonstrate this really quick, this point about context, why this is important. So I want you to use your imagination really quick and think of your favorite movie or just a favorite movie. I know sometimes you can be like, oh, there's so many, I can't pick one. So Top Gun Maverick, you're already thinking about it. It's the best one. <laughs> favorite movie. Now imagine there's a special showing and it's back in theaters and your best friend has never seen it. And this is an atrocity to end all atrocities. So being the charitable friend you are, you say, well, surely they have to see this movie. I'm going to buy them a ticket. Let's go watch this together. So you schedule it all. It's all going to go really well. You show up to the movie theater anxiously waiting for your friend to arrive, and they don't show up. 
and you're waiting, and the previews keep going, and you're like, are they going to see this movie? I really hope they see this movie. This is like, man, when they go upside down, and, and it's not like special effects. Like, Tom Cruise really went through that. Like, this is crazy, right? You want them to see this and experience it. And so right at like the cusp of the movie, when they're banking out of these mountains or whatever it is in your movie, your friend walks in and like kind of pops their head in and goes, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, and profusely apologizes for being late to the movie. They ask you really quietly under the breath, like, hey, Tyler, can you like update me on the movie? I know I missed like an hour and a half. And you're like, I can do my best, but I'm not Steven Spielberg, and the SparkNote version's just not really gonna cut it. So you do your best, but they just leave confused, lost, and missing out on what really is the best movie of all time, Top Gun Maverick. Now, <laughs> willingly or unwillingly, we often approach the Bible this way. We come to it in the middle of the story, not quite sure who the characters are or what's going on. We do our best to try and get caught up, but we're still left confused without the full recap. And what's worse, sometimes we introduce others to the Bible in the same way. We invite them to the movie because it's our favorite, but we do so in the middle of the action not adequately explaining to them what got them there in the first place. Partly because of our negligence and partly because of our ignorance. We've never been taught to read the scriptures properly ourselves. And so instead of us and our friends appreciating the movie, they just feel lost and late to the party. And so very simply, to understand the Bible, we need to understand its context. Both the context of that particular text and also the context of where it falls within the narrative framework of the complete work. And that's why I'm really excited for the sermon series in the next five weeks, because we get a chance to press the reset button using the book of James. Not only do we get to glean insights from the book of James, but more importantly, we get to learn how to properly engage with the Bible so we can someday do it on our own. Our hope is not for you to just come to church and be spoon-fed by your pastors but to learn to be independent disciples that can teach others to do the same. But what's also cool during this series is we get to do it in community. It's a safe place to admit you're confused, to try new things, and to fail. You don't have to put on a face. And as crucial as it is to read the scriptures in light of its context, that also cannot be the totality of it. Because if it was, there would be no relevance of it on our lives today. It would be an ancient relic instead of a living and active word. So there needs to be an understanding of what it said back then and to who it was speaking to, but also an understanding of what does it say to us today in our current moment. The text is the inspired word of God and remains timeless. But we need to connect to the historical context if we're going to properly understand it in its modern context. And we really need both of these perspectives when approaching the Bible. This is why it can be frustrating for those who go to the Bible looking very specific answers to questions. Questions like, what does the Bible have to say about abortion or the transgender community? It's frustrating because we're superimposing our modern problems into biblical times and failing to take in the historical context. And in approaching the text that way, we will never find cut and dry answers to those questions. So reading it only in light of its historical context kills its present-day power. But reading it only in light of today leads to dangerous, dangerous interpretations that were never meant to be God's intent. However, if we read it through both lenses, it allows us to see ourselves in the story and to improvise our current situation based on the reservoir of biblical information. 
And if we fill our reservoir of knowledge with biblical texts, we will be able to intelligently apply God's heartbeat to our current moment. In other words, we will learn what God's voice sounds like, and we will be able to listen and obey more effectively today. Theodore Roosevelt, the 26th president of the United States, put it this way, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. And with all that I've said, there's one also, there's one more opportunity in us in the Bible that I haven't touched on. And that's hearing from God himself. It can be easy to feel confused whether or not God is speaking to you. Like, is this actually God or is he just like my crazy thoughts? One of those ways that we can be sure is through the Bible because it is what he's already said. In some ways, it's like a voicemail that allows us to listen to his voice hear and see what it feels like, what it sounds like, what it tastes like, so we can recognize it for future occasions. And then by returning to that voicemail again and again and again, we're more attuned to his voice in the quiet places. So when he speaks in the loud places, our ears easily perk up. And so if you want to know what God sounds like, you have to read the Bible Not only will you begin to learn his voice, but you will also experience the words on the page that pierce your heart for the present reality. Let me share an example. So I had a long journey before working here at Boulder Valley in 2014, I believe. I graduated from University of Colorado, Sco Buffs, in 2012. Yeah, Sco Buffs. And uh, with childhood dreams I had of going to medical school, I studied for the MCAT in 2013. At the same time, Jesus was kind of calling me and divide, or he had called me, and my heart fell in love with him. Uh, and I was trying to figure out, should I go to medical school? Should I be in ministry? And through a long series of process, um, I was called into ministry. So here I am, but I had no idea what that looked like. And so at the time, I was working for Young Life. Young Life is a parachurch ministry. It works with adolescents, introducing them to Jesus Christ. Uh, currently, I, or at that time, I was part-time, but I didn't have a full-time position available because the Boulder area didn't have any. So I was interviewing for other jobs. One in Colorado Springs, one in Fort Collins, one in San Diego. And then during this process, kind of randomly, I got an email in my inbox saying, hey, the, this church down the road in Boulder called Boulder Valley Christian Church has a youth pastor position. You should, you know, maybe apply. And I said, oh, okay. They had a brief questionnaire and attached a job description. I figured, what the heck, I'll fill it out and send it on my way. And uh, so I sent it, headed out to California for surf trip, which was a, a spring break trip that we did every year. When I got back, I was offered a 30-minute interview. It was in the workroom over here. Uh, I still remember Mike Oliver was, was in that meeting. I don't know if Mike's here today. Maybe he's teaching the kids. But uh, I don't know why I remember Mike and Matt, but those are pretty much the only two people I remember in the room. Uh, and then when I got back, I, yeah, I did that 30-minute that interview. Now, before that interview, I thought it would probably be good to attend the church that I'm going to, or at least like, try, like online services weren't a thing really at that time. So I was like, I should probably go to the church first before I apply. So I looked online, saw that the service was at 9 o'clock. So I was like, oh, I'm going to show up early, make sure I'm on time. Showed up at 8.45. Turns out that they had just turned from two services to one service, and so it wasn't a 9.30 service. It was, or it wasn't, sorry, a 9 o'clock service. It was a 9.30 service. So instead of being about 15 minutes late or early, I was like 45 minutes early. So I came in here, and I was like, wow, this is a really packed church. Just kidding. There's no one here. What's going on? Matt invited me to pray, gave me a tour of the building, uh, and then I watched 
what, <laughs> what I'd consider a really outdated church service <laughs> of the time. Um, and, but I was like, okay, well, we'll see what, ha- what happens here. I still decided to go through the interview because I was like, if nothing else, it's going to be a great interview experience, and uh, I'm looking for a job anyway. So I had my 30-minute interview and went on my, my merry way. The next day or the next couple days, Matt Carlson gave me a phone call, and he said, hey, uh, let's meet for lunch. So we went to Lark Burger in Boulder, and he told me, Tyler, you're, you're not ready. I was 23, and I was not ready. He said, you're not ready for the youth pastor role, uh, but we like you, and we'd like to maybe create a one-year internship for you. And I was like, okay, well, that sounds sort of interesting. Tell me a little bit more about that. And he said, well, it would allow you to continue working with Young Life and to get some church experience. Now, what I haven't told you so far in this story is what was going on behind the scenes internally with me. I had continued to interview with the Young Life uh, branch in Fort Collins, and they offered me a job. But during one of those conversations, their director said something very profound to me. She said, too often we chase dream communities, when in reality we should be chasing our dream jobs, when in reality we should be chasing dream communities. Too often we chase dream jobs, when we should be chasing dream communities. And that sat with me, and I kept thinking about that. Because I was looking for a job, and I was also looking for a community. And then that morning of my lunch with Matt, during my devotional time, I came across a piece of scripture in John 14, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, a big part of my story is me feeling spiritually and emotionally orphaned. Some of you know this, but while I was entering high school, my mom started a a battle with cancer that eventually took her life. And during that period, my brother and I grew apart, and my dad was rightly preoccupied with tending to his dying bride. And so I was left to fend for myself. I felt abandoned and orphaned. And then all that changed when I met Jesus at the age of 19. I was thrust into a community that finally, finally felt like family. I lived in a rickety old house down the road from here with 10 other brothers who relentlessly chased after Jesus. And they had become my spiritual family. And during this interview process, I had been grieved that I needed to say goodbye to that family. There was not a place for me in that community anymore. I needed to work, and I had to leave. And then the morning of my lunch with Matt, I had my devotional time, and I read that verse. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I specifically remember asking God that morning to help me live into that promise today. And then a few hours later, in that conversation over lunch, I realized that not only was I being offered a chance to stay in Boulder, but a chance to stay in my family. I was being offered my dream community. God had made a way where there was no way. He had made the impossible possible. And as I drove home on Foothills Parkway, worship music blasting and the sun shining over the flat irons, all I could do was cry. The God I loved had spoken to me. He had used his word to pierce my heart in my present day. The main purpose of learning to read the Bible is not to acquire more information. That's a good benefit, but it's not the main objective. The main objective is to build authentic relationship with God. Because a love affair will always outperform an intellectual conquest. A love affair will always outperform an intellectual conquest. 
The Bible allows us to commune with God if we give it time to speak. What we must do, as the psalmist says, and meditate on it day and night. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorites, uh, he puts it this way. He says, regarding God's word, let us love it and live in it and eat it and drink it and lie down on it and walk on it and stand on it and swear by it and live by it and rest in it. 